Good morning. I'm Dan. I'm part of the lead team. And this morning we're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10 in the ESV version. You can follow along on the screens. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth, of, a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take the tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessing by the superior." In the one case, tithes are received by mortal man, but in the other case, by one of whom is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, pays tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Thanks, Dan. Hey, good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday, where we hold the selfies and put the gram away. Um, I, uh, thanks, Tara. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, I, I get the privilege of introducing a brand new uh, series called For the Better. Don't you love that artwork? I love, I love that artwork there. And, uh, you know, if we plan this series right, and Hebrews 7 through 10, if we plan the series right, this could be the weirdest Sunday morning before Christmas you've ever been a part of. Uh, because uh, we're not necessarily going to Luke chapter 2, uh, per se, you know. Uh, we're going to be talking about this strange dude uh, named Melchizedek. And, um, but we are going to link him to the manger and uh, to shepherds and to the wise men. So this will be a pseudo-Christmas message. So if you can't get to Ganondagon tomorrow, you at least get a little bit uh, of Christmas at Centerway here. Uh, the thing I love about the title of this sermon series is that the word better is so subjective, right? I mean, who gets to say what's better and what's not better? Uh, you know, like I work with third, fourth, and fifth graders, and they're always telling me that uh, Lego time is much better than math time, you know? And I'm telling them, no, math time is better than Legos, and I always lose that battle for some reason. Uh, but with kids and even with adults, uh, you know, you can have a conversation and say, uh, this is better. And they say, no, 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 this is better. And they either back it up with facts or they say, that's just the way I like it or whatever the case would be. Uh, and so we get to kind of uh, talk about what, it, what it's like to have a, um, a, the word better not be as subject, subjective uh, because uh, it's based in what God says is better. So it's not what Centerway thinks is better. It's not what Pastors Claude and Meredith think are better uh, Hebrews is going to roll out uh, through these next several chapters um, what is better. Jesus is better uh, than certain things, and he's going to explain that in a way that is not subjective. And so um, it, bear with me, and uh, you'll, uh, I think we will get to the bottom of that. Uh, let me start off this way. Have you ever um, gotten song lyrics wrong, but were convinced that your lyrics were better than the actual lyrics uh, that happened there? Um, Daedra uh, gave me permission to share this. When she was a kid, uh, she liked Full House and would sing the intro, uh, you know, to Full House. And um, 
her version is hands down better than the original version because, you know, at the end where they go, when you're lost out there and you're all alone, her version is a lion's waiting to carry you home. Uh, that so much better than a light is waiting to carry you home. A light can't bring you home, can't take you anywhere, but a lion, you know, lion's waiting. And uh, so it's a better, better image anyway, I would say. And, uh, you know, there's, I think, I I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but you probably have done that where you say, oh, wait, that's the actual lyric? Like, I've been singing it wrong for my whole life, and I'm going to keep singing it wrong because I've got my way, you know? Um, one of the, the times this happened, a few years ago, um, I was at a church and um, uh, was next to a new family, a new family, right around this time of year, actually. Uh, and they weren't necessarily church-going family, um, but pleasant and wonderful people. Uh, the mom came with, I think, a, a seven-year-old daughter and about a five-year-old son. And Deja was actually uh, leading worship and singing a song called Ever Be. Uh, it was um, a song, I think Bethel, uh, you know, uh, does it. Uh, but the lyrics go, the chorus is just very, very simple. Uh, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips. And it just keeps going like that for the chorus. Uh, but this is a new family. And um, uh, they sat right next to me in the front row, which I thought was pretty awesome, you know. And I'm just kind of like closing my eyes and getting into it, you know. And uh, at the top of his lungs, this five-year-old boy singing, Your praise will Never be on my lips, never be on my lips. And I'm closing my eyes, and so I'm thinking, like, this dude is, like, messing up worship, you know what I mean? Like, he's doing it on purpose, and he's just being a little naughty boy right before Christmas, and, you know, that's never good. And so uh, I open my eyes, and I look over, and uh, his hands are raised, you know, because Deja's raising her hands, you know. And uh, he thought, like, he was owning it, man. Like, he was legitimately worshiping uh, with, the, with the words, your praise will never be on my lips, you know, and uh, he was the loudest one in the room. <laughs> it was like, and, and I went from being like, what's he doing? He's messing up worship to being like, wow, he's actually, he's worshiping. He doesn't know the words he's singing, you know, uh, but every time Deidre would say something, he would mimic it. Every time Deidre did something, he would try to mimic it, and uh, he was someone that uh, didn't really know church etiquette or even the song, uh, but man, his heart uh, he, was, he was belting it from the rooftops, you know, and uh, it was a very uh, minor or seemingly insignificant moment in the service and in the life of that church, but it made an incredible impression on me. And uh, from that point, uh, moving forward, I've, I've been asking myself the question, am I like that? Am I okay with just being loud, even if I'm wrong, even if I'm, uh, you know, kind of making a scene or, uh, you know, not being 100% perfect in my life? Am I okay with just saying, God, you've got my life. I'm going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to go where you want me to go and say what you want me to say, even if I goof it up a little bit, you know? Uh, is my heart in the place uh, where I can move forward? So this five-year-old Karsten, uh, you know, made a profound impact on my life with something that was just so minor uh, and maybe even insignificant. He probably doesn't even remember uh, that it happens. It's funny because I actually work in his school now. So I haven't told him that story yet, but I'll bring it up one day. Uh, here's, here's the reality is that uh, we so very often um, feel as if our lives are insignificant because it seems like... Uh, our lives need to be doing something big in order to make a big impact. And so I'm going to ask this question this morning to, to, to get our, our wheels spinning here. Why 
do we sometimes minimize our impact on the world? It's a good question. Karsten singing, your praise will never be on my lips, impacted me in a way that I'm still talking about a few years later here. And I think the answer to the question that's up on the screen this morning, why do we sometimes minimize our impact on the world, uh, is because it is so easy to believe a lie that it's the big moments that make the biggest impact. Like, our, we have to do some pretty big things to make a difference in the world or to make a difference in somebody's world here. Uh, and because most days aren't filled with big moments, we feel like we just don't have the opportunity. And we begin to, to buy into a lie that says, well, we can't change anything today, but, but someday. Someday when? There's more money in the bank account. Someday when the house is bigger, or I get that degree, or whatever uh, that someday would look like. But I want to remind you this week that your life has been changed by a whole series of little seemingly insignificant moments that have shaped and, impact, and impacted your life. The world celebrates a baby being born in a small town in an out-of-the-way country. Those kind of things happen every day, but this week we celebrate that because the seemingly insignificant or inconsequential moment a few thousand years ago made a profound impact because there was something about that baby, right? There was something about that town uh, that was far from ordinary. And that far from ordinary spirit and that far from ordinary life lives in you and I who lean into Christ uh, this time of year and every day. But as we speak of ordinary, uh, there, Hebrews in this chapter here references a story about a guy named Melchizedek that starts in Genesis chapter 14, uh, but it's also mentioned in Psalm 110. Now, I bring up Psalm 110 because uh, it is one of the most impactful uh, texts of all the Old Testament on the New Testament writers. Um, what I mean by that is Psalm 110 is referenced directly in the New Testament more than any other passage in the Old Testament. It's over 20 times. Uh, and I would dare to, to wager that nobody in this room uh, has memorized Psalm 110. Maybe I'm wrong. Hopefully I'm wrong. Uh, but we probably don't go to it in our time of need or uh, during wedding celebrations or anything like that. We know Psalm 23 and maybe Psalm 103, and we know the one that goes, uh, his love endures forever, like every at the end of every verse, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, but Psalm 110 is significant because it shows up in some really significant morning, uh, moments, excuse me, in the history of the New Testament church. And so, uh, Jesus uses it to talk about what his character is uh, in the Gospels. And then Peter actually references it in the first New Testament sermon after Jesus was resurrected in Acts. Uh, Hebrews here uses it to talk about the scope of the forgiveness and the redemption of God. Uh, but like we said earlier, uh, it's seemingly insignificant. This text centers around Jesus' comparison uh, to a guy who many seem to, to feel like he's an insignificant character in Scripture, but who actually points the way to authentic peace. Now, this time of year, the idea of peace is on just about everyone else's, everyone's mind and, and lips, and, uh, you know, it's something that we can kind of all safely agree on. No matter what our creed, no matter what uh, we celebrate, we all can say, like, hey, listen, we just want to get along. We want, we want to have peace. And so it seems like a very safe uh, kind of thing. Uh, 
But as we'll see, uh, Hebrews reminds us and unpacks the idea that peace can be a very, very dangerous thing if we look for it in the wrong place. So let's uh, open up our our scripture again or look up at the screen again. We're going to read the first three verses of this chapter, and then we'll begin to unpack it again. Uh, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, so I'll admit it, there is a lot of stuff in there, a lot of confusing things that uh, uh, don't really you know, roll off the tongue necessarily. Uh, I'm going to do my best to clear it up a little bit. Uh, but Claude talked about it uh, in recent weeks that Melchizedek comes from this very interesting story in Genesis 14 where uh, Abraham and his family go out to battle with some factions of people who have invaded Sodom uh, and have taken his nephew, Lot. So Abraham has a, a pretty big contingency of family and friends and people uh, that are under his care. And he goes out with them, does battle, uh, gets his nephew back. And as he is returning from that battle, he meets this king, this guy named Melchizedek. Uh, And this is where the story really gets interesting. Uh, Genesis 14, 18 introduces Melchizedek the way uh, that the writer of Hebrews does, as, as king of Salem and as priest of God Most High. Uh, Now, not to get too technical or anything, this story happens before uh, the nation of Israel is uh, officially and firmly formed, but Abraham has received promises from God, like Claude talked about, Uh, promises that uh, his offspring will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. Uh, And so he knows there's something significant that is going to happen uh, with me or through me or uh, through my offspring, however that's going to look. And uh, as uh, he goes through, he sees this man, this king who's a priest, and realizes that he uh, needs to give him a tithe. This, this king Melchizedek blesses him, and Abraham says, I have to give you a gift. I have to give you the, a tenth, a, a tithe portion. Uh, this priest king only gets a few verses in the grand narrative of Scripture for sure, uh, but Abraham, who is the father of the nation of Israel, actually gives him a tithe, which is really significant and really profound. In, in this description of Melchizedek, And in this description of his relationship and dynamic with Abraham, uh, two uh, interesting contrasts come up. And those contrasts um, actually become unified in the person, excuse me, of Jesus. Um, But in order for us to move any further, we have to break down these comparisons real quick. So bear with me. (coughs) Excuse me. Number one is that he's both king and priest. You probably noticed that. Uh, For the Israelites, uh, this would be two offices that were polar opposite from each other. Uh, So the king would be the one who rules, obviously, on the throne, uh, but who also is the head of the law in uh, ancient times, ancient Israel and ancient cultures around that time. In fact, the king often uh, would judge different legal matters uh, that would come up all the way uh, into his court. Uh, And so this king would also serve as judge. And so for his role, uh, he would make sure that the law was upheld 
that he would, he would regulate laws, he would decree laws, and then there were moments where he would be the judge. He would make sure that these laws were upheld. But the priest, on the other hand, was the one who saw to it that when you didn't uphold the law, uh, that there was forgiveness for you through his own sacrifice. And so uh, not necessarily were they like, you know, butting heads or, or whatever, uh, but they had opposite kind of jobs. The king would uphold the law and would make sure that nobody was breaking the law. And then the priest would make sure that if the law was broken, that there would be forgiveness, that there would be uh, a, a way, a sacrificial way for them to be forgiven for those things. And so the Israelites and the Hebrews that were uh, reading this, this, uh, this book originally would say, wow, there is a, there's a tension here. The second uh, contrast, though, uh, comes from those two offices, and those are the words righteousness and peace. So we see that Melchizedek is uh, king of righteousness. His name means righteousness, and the king of Salem means king of peace. Salem, shalom, means peace. So the king <clears throat> would execute righteousness by making sure that the law was upheld, and the priest would make sure that the unrighteousness that you had was atoned for. So you obtained righteousness by being in right standing with God, and you were in right standing with God by upholding all the laws, the law of God. The problem was, though, that in Israel, uh, there was over 600 laws that you would have to try to uphold and, and kind of make sure that you were following along. And of course, nobody can do that all. Nobody is perfect enough to uphold every single law all of us would have to have, at one point or another, uh, a sacrifice to atone for our sins, right? And so because you couldn't be perfectly righteous, you would need a way to be forgiven for your wrongdoing, which would then bring peace. So if you had righteousness, you would have peace. But since no one can be righteous, we needed a way to get to peace. Perfect righteousness was impossible to come by, so perfect peace was elusive. So here's the deal. We have Melchizedek being both king and priest, being uh, calling for both righteousness while providing peace uh, and atoning for those. And so Israel had this, this tension with Melchizedek. It was very, very hard to fathom. But if, as we said, Psalm 110 talks about Melchizedek in the sense that the Messiah will look a lot like him, that the one that they were waiting for would have these two qualities in him as well. He would be the king of righteousness that would come to execute the law of God to make sure that holiness was attained, but also would provide peace, would provide atonement, a way to be forgiven for when we do uh, mess things up. And so the, for the Israelites, this picture of the Messiah uh, was something that they could only dream about. It was a great idea of what the future could, could look like, uh, but it was probably not attainable. In fact, uh, for some of us that have uh, studied some passages in the Old Testament, we know that when a king tried to perform the duties of a priest, uh, he would be punished spiritually and, uh, and otherwise. And so it was impossible for a king to be a priest uh, in that religious system. And so uh, this ruler of the people would also have to serve the people. I'll say it that way. The, the one who would rule the people would also have to be the one to serve the people. And so that's why we continue with Hebrews verses 4 and 5. It's a, it's a pretty interesting passage. So verse 4 says this, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people 
that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So the author of Hebrews says, what a great man. What a great man this was. Uh, And even though he came from outside of the Hebrew lineage, uh, he was an incredible man. Uh, We don't know anything about his father or his mother. We don't know anything about his genealogy. But we do know that because Abraham was the father of the Israelite nation, Melchizedek was not an Israelite. So we know that uh, Melchizedek uh, was something from outside of this religious system that they had tried so hard to attain. And here we get a glimpse at what righteousness is going to look like when the Messiah comes. So it's not going to be a righteousness that you can obtain through the law or work hard enough to achieve. There's going to be something from outside of the law, outside of the religious system, that would come in and provide righteousness that you don't work for. And so here's actually, if we look at verse 6 as well. But this man who does not have his descent from them received received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. We already kind of mentioned this, but Abraham, who was the the greatest of the Israelite patriarchs, um, he received the promises uh, from God. And yet here Melchizedek is greater than the greatest Israelite, Father Abraham, who, you know, had many sons and all that stuff. Uh, I just had to get it out because it was in my head. If I didn't say it, I'd be in trouble. Uh, He was greater than... uh, any, any patriarch that the nation of Israel had ever known. Now, Hebrews is really unpacking some, some pretty uh, challenging things for uh, his readers or her readers, whoever uh, was the author of Hebrews, um, challenging the idea that, wait a second, there was somebody outside of my own system, my own law, uh, that would actually be greater than Father Abraham? It's controversial. It's really controversial. And so uh, before we get any further, it's important for us to stop and ask two very, very important questions. The first of this, of which is, why would this be important to the Hebrews? Why would this matter to the Hebrews? And maybe even more importantly, uh, why does, what does this have to do with, with my life today? Like, this is great, Eric. This is a great history lesson. Good for you. Like, it's Christmas. I got stuff I got to do. Like, what does this matter to me, you know? Uh, well, I'm going to break down first uh, for the Hebrews. Uh, As we said before, uh, the Messianic uh, Psalm 110 uh, links the Messiah to the one uh, that would come in the order of Melchizedek, uh, the king who would liberate his people uh, from their oppressors, would be a priest who would offer a better peace, a better peace than they could devise on their own. And so this peace, uh, this way to peace would be better than anything that they could achieve through upholding the law or by following uh, the Torah, uh, anything that they could do on their own. The writer of Hebrews is reminding those that are waiting for the Messiah, that believe that Jesus has come uh, and is that Messiah, the one that they have been looking for for so long, that he has been found. And as he died the death that they deserved and rose again to, to new life, to liberate them from the bondage of their sin, uh, as they hold fast to Jesus, he is the one who brings perfect peace. Perfect peace. We talk about it, we sing about it at Christmas time, uh, that the angels uh, said, um, Behold, I bring good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. They bless God and said, Peace on earth, goodwill to all men. The peace that they are looking for. Uh, Isaiah prophesies about it, uh, that the one who would come would be called uh, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting father, prince of peace. And so this lineage of Melchizedek bringing peace would be established in the Messiah. And and Isaiah says, not only is he the prince of peace, but Isaiah moves on uh, to, to declare that the son of righteousness will come with healing in his wings. So the Messiah is going to be both righteous and bring peace. And that's where you and I come in this morning. Why does this matter to me? Why does this matter to us? Is this just a, a nice little message about, hey, you know, God is good and he's righteous and he brings peace? I think it goes a little bit deeper than that today. Because as, as I said earlier, uh, peace is one thing that all of us look for in our lives. We all know it when we need it. We all know in those seasons where we say, listen, I just, I just got to get to a place uh, where there's peace again in my life. But people disagree on how you get to that place, right? How, how can I get to that place where I can experience peace on my own? And so maybe you'll hear somebody say uh, something like, well, if I could just find my happy place. I just need to get to my happy place. <laughs> you know, like, Ugh, that's a little weird. But if you said that, I'm, I'm sorry I said that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, just, I realized I just offended like several people, so I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, maybe you've heard this. You've heard uh, peace is found inside of yourself. So you don't have to look anywhere else. Just look deep down inside of you. And if you look really hard and if you uh, unearth some things in your life, you'll be able to experience the peace that comes from within, and then you'll live a peaceful life. The question then becomes, okay, so what if that doesn't work? Like, if, that's, if I am the source of peace and I don't feel peaceful, then what? Where else can I go? And then maybe the answer is, well, then, then you just got to get away from people that are, uh, are just not positive people. And you got to surround yourself with people that are peaceful. And that sounds great, and I mean, that's probably really, really good advice, but the problem is you may be married or uh, you may have kids or uh, you may still live with the, your parents and you're like, I can't get away from these people. <laughs> you know I mean? Like they are peaceful sometimes, you know, I mean, but nobody really walks around, you know, like floating on a cloud and all that stuff. Like we have, we are human, we're frail and we have moments where things just aren't peaceful in our lives. And so it's impossible for us to just surround ourselves with good people all the time because we're human, right? And we fall short of God's glory all the time. And so maybe you then say something like, oh, I'll just go out to the woods. You know, nature is where peace is found. And so I'm going to climb a mountain. I'm going to go into the forest. I'm going to take a paddle and hike or paddle out into to the lake somewhere. And that's where I'm going to find true peace. Then you realize you live in upstate New York, right? And uh, if you want to go outside, you have to bundle up really well, and you're probably cursing under your breath, you know, because of all the things you got to put on. And maybe not on a day like today, but there, is, there are moments where you're sitting at work or you're in school, and you're like, if peace is found out in the woods, I'm going to be in trouble if I leave right now and run out there, you know, but I need something. And so I, I love that the author of Hebrews is reminding us that peace is not found in a place that if we look hard enough, we can find. Peace is established in a place that has come to us, that has come from outside of our circumstance and has entered into our world to be born on a, a throne in a manger. His name is Jesus. And that peace comes from his righteousness, not from our righteousness, not from somebody else's righteousness, not from this idea that like, hey, I've got this priest that kind of is, is, a, is a good priest, but from the righteousness established by God. So 
the, uh, uh, the commentators would say it like this. The peace of God is based on the righteousness of God. The better peace that Abraham saw in Melchizedek can only be found where righteousness is found. The problem, though, uh, is that just like that word better up there, sometimes we feel like righteousness can be subjective. You know, Who's to say, what set of laws should I follow in order to live up to this idea and be righteous? Because I think in 2019 uh, that it's up to me. And if I just live up to my own standard, then I'm pretty righteous and I should find peace and uh, things should go pretty well. And if you don't live up to my standard, well then good luck for you. There's not going to be peace in your life, you know. Uh, that's, that's a problem. And we all, we all know uh, it, that's problematic because if truth is subjective, if righteousness is, is subjective, that we all have these different laws that we're all judging each other by, uh, and we judge ourselves by our intentions. We wanted to uphold the law, but we were tired, or we wanted to be really good people, but that person is just such a jerk, you know? Um, but we judge other people based on their own actions. So when people are jerks, we say, ha, 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 I hope they don't have peace in their life because they're really unrighteous in this moment, you know? Hebrews says this, that righteousness uh, upheld produces peace. And if you're tracking with me, you might begin to think, well, that's God's righteousness. That's probably those 600 plus laws that we're talking about. There's no way for me to live up to that. That's why there's no peace in my life. Oh, I get it. So I guess I'm doomed. I guess life, you know, is just going to be full of chaos and disorder the rest of my life. However, there is one who has connected the kingdom, the kingship, that office, with the priestly office. The one in the order of Melchizedek who says, I need to uphold you to a certain standard because I am a good king and I can't let just uh, uh, people who don't uphold the law, I can't let them get away. Think about a judge in, in today's society. If a judge had somebody come before them who uh, was found guilty and then said, hey, you know what? It's Christmas. I know you murdered that dude, but like, happy holidays, man. You can, you can go away. Like, that is not a good judge. The person that gets away might think, yeah, that's, that's a really good judge. But everyone in society would say, that is not a good judge. If there was a righteous king who had to uphold righteousness and then said, I'll just sweep your sin under the rug, that would not be a good king. But if there was one who was a good king and our high priest who would say, I can't let sin go. I can't let these lawbreakers get away. Therefore, I have to punish sin. I know, I'll sacrifice on their behalf. And as a result of that, there's better peace. There's perfect peace because there's a perfect sacrifice for that sin. Well, then that's something altogether different, isn't it? And that's what we celebrate this week. We don't celebrate that, hey, good vibes came when Jesus came because he was just this really good guy. And you know what? If we could be more like him, then maybe we'll just have good vibes too, right? We're saying that the, the priest king has come, that upholds righteousness, but because he does, he sacrifices the perfect sacrifice on our behalf so that we get the benefit of what true righteousness looks like, perfect peace. Perfect peace in his presence. And that's not found by jumping out into the woods uh, or surrounding yourself with the right people or just kind of getting away. It's found when we say yes to his plan and his call. 
He has a call for you and he has a call for me. And I used to think that what that means is like, whoa, a calling is pretty big. Like I got to go be a missionary in some kind of country where I'll never see my family again. Uh, But it doesn't necessarily have to look like that. In fact, like we said earlier, uh, some of the most significant callings in life have come from the most seemingly ordinary uh, yes moments where you say yes to God. It doesn't come necessarily from those times where we say, I'm going to stand up in my school with my Bible and tell everybody about what it means to have peace with God. It could be the conversation where you say to your teacher, man, I'll pray for you, whatever it would look like. Or it may come in that moment where you, you say, you know what, this person has been on my mind and I don't know exactly why, but I'm going to send them a care package. And that be, might be the most significant thing that person will ever experience in their entire life. Look at what verses 7 through 10 say about that. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, that's the, the, the tribe that would... Um, produce the, uh, the sacrifice would be the priests and the high priests. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. I love how verse 8 says it. In Israel's system, the priest would serve until they died. But the high priest in the order of Melchizedek comes and lives forever so that he never stops being our high priest. And if that is true, then the one who lives forever lives in you and he lives in me so that we don't have to muster up the strength to be righteous. And we don't have to muster up the the big, big dreams that will revolutionize the world. All we have to do is say yes. Significant and ordinary ways. Significant yes and ordinary yes. I'm not minimizing the incredible impact uh, that giving your life uh, to something will do but I also don't want you to minimize the impact uh, that a smile uh, or a word will say will change someone's life. Uh, doing it with your heart, you know? Your praise will never be on my lips, you know? Just, just doing it with your, with your whole entire heart. Uh, only Jesus uh, can fulfill the calling of the king priest who would live forever. Because he lives in you and because he lives in me, our yes is enough. Our yes is enough. Now, uh, God called the Levites to serve, like we said, but he also foresaw a day when a better sacrifice would be made. And because he lives forever, all we have to do is listen. All we have to do is listen and accept the calling from him that will point to his righteousness and his peace. Uh, Some of you know that uh, we recently discovered that uh, my wife is pregnant. And uh, it, was a, it was a surprise to us, but we we're very, very excited about it. Um, but that first week that uh, Deja let me know um, was seriously shocking. Like, you can probably tell I'm still, I'm still coming out of it, you know. It's been six weeks. Uh, but uh, uh, that was a pretty impactful week. We had just gotten off a lead team retreat, so it was, it was, it was kind of an exciting and a busy week. Um, but Monday uh, was the day that she said, I'm pregnant. I was like, uh impossible. So what are you really telling me? Um, but uh, uh, so that was, a, it was a pretty shocking day on Monday. Uh, and then some of you also know that we're, uh, we just um, 
agreed to buy a house in Victor. So the very next day, all of this money came out of our account, you know, and that's when it got really real. So my life changed on Monday. It was significantly altered on Tuesday. Uh, and then Wednesday morning, I wake up and my car doesn't start. I turn, I turn the key and like nothing happens. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm a, I feel like I'm a pretty laid back kind of guy, you know, uh, but those three days in a row just rocked my world, you know. Uh, and so my car didn't start. I, I, did, I couldn't go to a meeting that I had to go to at work that day. And uh, it was, I was like, God, what is happening right now? You know, my world's kind of uh, turned upside down. Uh, so I text my friend Claude. Because, you know, he worked on his car. He, you had a car, a Honda, for like a decade or something like that. Uh, so he's done a lot of work on cars. And I said, hey, you ever change a starter? You know? And he said, no, but I bet we can do it. So I was like, oh, okay. So we did a little bit of research and um, discovered that, eh, you know, it was fairly uh, inexpensive to find a starter. Uh, the problem would be actually putting the starter in, you know. Um, and so uh, I got paid on Friday. So I said, well, if I can just hold off till Friday then I'll be good to go. Thursday, um, Claude goes, hey, can I come over and just check to make sure if it's a starter? His dad uh, knew the trick where if you hit the starter with a hammer and it started up, that means the starter was bad. And I didn't believe him until it actually did it. <laughs> he smacked it with a hammer and it started up. I was like, whoa, this is amazing. He's like, yep, it's the starter. Uh, and then he, go, I, he goes, all right, let's get you a starter. Let's put this thing in. I said, all right, well, if I can just wait till Friday, you know, the next day, then we can do it. He goes, how do we do it right now? And he had the starter. He had bought a starter for me and had, uh, him and Meredith had talked about it um, and said, we just want to do this for you. He didn't do it because he knew like Eric Hamlin's world is turned upside down right now. He just said, I just want to do, you know, just do something nice. Um, and I really, really appreciated it. But in that moment when you came out with that starter from your car, I was like, Okay, God, you, you got this thing. That was far more than a starter in my world, you know. That was exactly what I needed at that moment because I thought, like, God, my life is slipping, uh, like, away or, like, changing so fast. I don't know, like, if you even are able to catch me in this free fall. And he said, you know what? I'm going to use a starter <laughs> to let you know that I love you, to let you know that I still have you, let you know that uh, I do have plans for you, but I also know those plans for you. Uh, so let me just regroup here. So what Claude and Meredith talked about, just being a, just a nice little gesture uh, was, was life-changing uh, for me. And who knows? Who knows what ordinary idea you have will change your world, will change someone else's world, will make an impact on, on your world and the people around you for the better. You don't get to determine that, which is the good news. We don't get to say, hey, I'm going to plan out my life uh, and I'm going to let every decision that I make be something that would change someone's world, but God does. And as we just listen to him and as we say yes to his voice, he uses the ordinary. He uses the ordinary to bring a better peace and a better hope to our world. Don't let this ordinary idea uh, just kind of stay in your head. Don't let this... Uh, Christmas message before our Christmas service, um, just be stuck as like this, hey, this, this good moment where I thought about really good things. We would love for you to draw this out. I'm not telling you anything. I'm not giving you any examples of what this could be, right? Um, 
But what I am challenging you with is to take that first step. And what the first step is, is to tell somebody about it. To say, hey, you know what? It's weird. If you've got a, a best friend or uh, if you have a spouse or, uh, you know, whatever it would look like, um, to say, you know what? God's really been putting this person in my mind for some reason. Maybe God's put them in their mind as well. And so the first step, I would say, is to don't let it just stick in there because if you're anything like me, you think, I should do something about that. Oh, look, baseball or whatever, you know, like if you tell somebody about it, it becomes real. It materializes and then you can say, okay, I can do something about this. And so uh, the question that I would love for us to, to wrestle with uh, as we begin to go to, uh, to respond in singing and as we begin this Christmas week here is this, who will I talk to this week about what God may be calling me to do? And again, you may be saying, God might be calling me to missionary work or uh, to work in orphanages or whatever it may be. But God's calling in your life probably will look like uh, giving somebody a card at work or you know, posting something nice to somebody's version wall or whatever the case would be. In other words, as we gather as families this week to celebrate the king who was placed in that manger throne, who will I choose to talk uh, to about keeping me accountable that my life points the way to better peace. Because we don't have to conjure that peace up ourselves, do we? We don't have to work hard enough to make sure that peace uh, is, is the word that is connected to our family. God does that work. And because of Jesus' uh, priestly kingdom, we get his righteousness and his peace as a result. Can you do me a favor? Could you bow your heads with me? We're about to, uh, to go to song. And as we do, uh, I would love for us to think about what that looks like. Not just what, uh, uh, what we can do, uh, that's, that's going to be important, but what it looks like to have God's righteousness in our lives. Some of us know exactly what that, what that would look like because we know those areas of our life that we've been keeping from God. Where we say, on the outside, it looks like I have everything together but deep down inside, I'm a hot mess. I'm trying to overcome uh, the sin that so easily entangles, but I can't do it on my own. And this morning, God would speak to you and say, you're right, you can. That's why Jesus came to uphold that law, but to be your sacrifice as your priest. Maybe for some of us, we're saying, okay, what's my next step then? And maybe your next step is to say, uh, you know what, I'm going to let the world know uh, that I'm following this Jesus, this priestly king. And so I want to be baptized. I want the world to know uh, that I'm his follower. Whatever that would look like today, I would love for you to wrestle with that as we begin to respond to him with our singing.